0: Alhamdulillah wa rabbi alalameen Wa salatu wa salam ala ashrafil anbiya'i wal murshalin Wa ala alihi wa sahabihi ajma'in So the first quality of the perfect wife Is someone who is insistent, tenacious Someone who is going to endure and keep going No matter what the circumstances She's so going to continue to believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Whether Her husband is with her or not Whether society is with her or not Whether her children are with her or not Nothing is going to stop her from fulfilling Her responsibility to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala The second quality Of a perfect wife Is a woman who is modest Modest Classy if you will In the way that she carries herself she has modesty, she has haya, shyness. And the woman that I want to look at with this is a woman whose chastity and her level of modesty was praised in the Qur'an on a number of occasions. And the woman that I'm referring to is Maryam, the daughter of Imran, the mother of Jesus, the mother of Isa, alayhi salam. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala captured and this is something for especially for those of us who have children in college especially for those of us who have daughters who are away from home because Maryam's situation was very similar to that she was young, beautiful, away from her family which young people when they tend to get away from their families they tend to kind of get loose and we would hope that the things that we teach our children, the lessons that we give them in the home when they're with us, that they are going to take those things with them out into the world. But unfortunately, some of our children, if you let their actions speak for them, they would basically tell you that their parents didn't teach them anything. While those parents worked very diligently to give these children, Muslim children, everything that we could have possibly given them to protect them, from the things that they were going to be confronted with, and they go out into the world and just, you know, take off everything. And you're saying to yourself, like, like it's almost as we didn't even raise you, like you're a whole different child. Allah Subhanahu wa Taala captured this in a situation in Sadaatum Maryam, where Allah Subhanahu wa Taala sent Angel Jibreel to go inform her that she was pregnant, right? And Angel Jibreel. السلام, when he takes on human form, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has sent Angel Jibril to the earth on a number of occasions, and Angel Jibreel has taken on human form. He took on human form in the hadith of Jibreel. When he came down in the form of Dihyah al-Kelbi, one of the Prophet's companions. Dihya was very handsome, very handsome. And anytime Angel Jibreel comes down, he always comes down in the image of a handsome individual. Right? During Hadith of Jibreel, when the man appeared and his, his thobe was exceedingly white and his hair was exceedingly black, and there was no signs or traces of travel on him, and no one knew him. Right? He walked right up to the Prophet, ﷺ, put his knees up against the knees of the Prophet, ﷺ, and he said, You know, Ya Muhammad an Anil Islam. Oh Muhammad. Tell me about Islam. The image that he came down in was the image of the Prophet's companion, Dihya. Dihya was a very handsome individual. Another example, when Angel Jibril came to the earth in human form, was during the time of Prophet Lut, alayhi salam, right? And Prophet Lut, his own wife, betrayed him, right? She betrayed him. She wasn't loyal to him. And we're going to talk about loyalty in another example. Right? She went out the back door, opened the back door, and let the people of Lut in. Right? The people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Let them in. Who were they after? They were after Angel Jibreel, salam. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent Angel Jibreel down to the earth to inform Ibrahim that his wife was going to give birth to his son. Right? Ishaq. And to give warning to Prophet Lut, because Lut and Ibrahim lived during the same time. And to warn Prophet Lut that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was going to destroy that town of Sodom and Gomorrah. Flip the town upside down, and then on top of flipping it upside down, rain down on it brimstone. right? Not just one punishment. The only town that was destroyed with multiple punishments. He came down in the form of a man who was very handsome and the people of Lut, they actually wanted him, right? So we see that every time Angel Jibril comes down to the earth, we see a pattern of him coming down in the form of a handsome man. He did the same thing when he came down to inform Maryam that she was pregnant. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala captured this particular incident. And when Angel Jibril approached Maryam, Maryam was away from her family. She was away from her family. She was away from uh, her tribe. She was away from everybody, young, pretty, by herself. And here comes this handsome man approaching. Picture many of our daughters in this situation today at college. We would like to think that they would carry on the traditions that we gave them, right? like in the situation of Asma, the sister of Aisha, she was married to Zubair, the cousin of the Prophet Zubair ibn Awam. The hadith is in Sahih al-Bukhari. She said that one day she was walking from the garden. They had a garden. Her and Zubair had a garden and she would go to the garden and take the fruits and the dates and everything, pick it, put it on her head and she would walk it from the garden back to the house. She said on one occasion... The Prophet ﷺ was with some of his companions. And he saw Asma' carrying all of this stuff on her head. So he told his camel to kneel down for Asma' to take a ride on the camel. He was going to walk the camel back to the house. So Asma' would not have to carry that on her head. And Asma', she said, فَذَكَرْتُ غَيْرَةُ زُبَيْرَ فَكَانَ أَغْيَرَ الْنَّاسِ she said, and at that moment when he told his camel to sit down for me to ride on it, I remember the jealousy of my husband. And my husband was the most jealous of individuals. She said, so I refuse. She said, I, I can't take the ride. And this is what I mean that when a woman is not in the presence of her husband, she still carries that modesty with her, even though he's not there. You remember your husband. You remember that if your husband, you see a woman, she's giving extra talk to the guy at the counter. It's like, you know, if your husband was standing right there, you wouldn't be laughing and giggling and all that other stuff that you're doing with dude. You know, you would not be doing that if your husband was standing right there. So why is it any different if he's not there? Why should it be any different? Asma, she said, I thought at that very moment when the prophet told the camel to kneel down for me to get on, at that very moment I thought about the jealousy of my husband. My husband was the most jealous of men. And I refused. She turned the prophet sallallahu alayhi wa, down. No, I'm okay. And walked away. This is the type of, you know, jealousy. This is the type of modesty that we want our daughters to have. That even though you are not with me as my daughter, you know that when you're on your college campus or when you're at high school and a guy comes to you and try to talk, you remember the jealousy of your father. You know, if your father was standing right there, that you wouldn't entertain that. Right. So Maryam coming from a righteous household. Right. As when Maryam came with the the baby to her family. Right? What did the people say to her? They asked Maryam, how could you do this? مَا كَانَ مَا Your father wasn't known to be licentious, nor was your mother known to be like, you know, to lewd or, or loose like that. How could you do this? You didn't come from that type of household. Right? So this shows you that, you know, we want our daughters, we want our girls to have and to carry on the same tradition of modesty that we raised them with in the home. So when Jibreel, he approached Maryam, as uh, Imam al to be mentioned in the tafsir, he said ja'aha Jibreel al birrahman, That when Jibreel approached Maryam by herself, pretty young woman, vulnerable by herself, handsome man, approaching her out of nowhere And what did she do? She sought refuge with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when she saw him coming approaching she sought refuge with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. She said inni a'udhu bir rahmani minka in kunta She said I seek refuge with the most merciful with Ar-Rahman and she noticed she didn't say Allah. She said she didn't say I seek refuge with Allah. She said I seek refuge with Ar-Rahman and I'm going to explain why she used that. Nothing in the Quran is haphazard. Everything in the Quran is put there for a reason. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala out of all of the stories that he captured in the Qur'an, right, he mentions specific things about these stories that is different from the way that these stories are narrated in other books, right, other religious texts. And that is because the Qur'an is very specific, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is very specific in what he captured in these stories. As Allah says in Surah Yusuf, لَقَدْ كَانَ فِي قَصَصِهِمْ إِبْرَةٌ لِأُولِي You have in these stories lessons for men of understanding, for people of understanding. Lessons. Everything in it is a lesson. So when Maryam saw Jibreel approaching, she didn't know it was Jibreel. She thought it was just a man because he was in human form she said, إِنِّي أَعُوذُ بِالرَّحْمَانِ مِنْكَ إِن كُنْتَ تَقِيَّ I seek refuge with Ar-Rahman from you If in fact you have piety and you're righteous right? Because if you're a righteous man You wouldn't approach a woman like that Imam al-Qurtubi, he said فَلَمْ تَقُونَ أَعُوذُ بِاللَّهِ بَلْ اِخْتَارَتْ وَصْفَ الرَّحْمَةِ وَذَلِكَ لِأَنَّهَا أَحْوَجَتْ مَا تَقُونُ أَحْوَجْ مَا تَقُونُ فِي تِ رحمة ربها وأن يرحم ضعفها ويصرف عنها الشر من اقتحم عليها وتذكيرا للرجل أن يرحمها فلا, فلا يمسها بسوء وهي فريدة بعيدة عن أهلها ولأنها تعلم لا شيء يحصن الإنسان ويصبره عن الإقدام على الحرام إلا التقوى Imam al said, notice Maryam didn't say I seek refuge with Allah, she said I seek refuge with Ar-Rahman. And she chose the description Ar-Rahman specifically out of all of the other names of Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala. She specifically chose Ar-Rahman simply because she in that situation was the most in need of Allah's mercy. She was in need of Allah's mercy at that very moment. For him to have mercy upon her due to her weakness and to have mercy upon her weakness at that very moment because we all have weak moments and the shaitan plays on those weak moments. Allah says the shaitan That shaitan and his army, they sit and they watch you from a place where you can't see them. They watch you. They know when you're vulnerable. They know when you're weak. Shaitan watches you. He sees the pattern. He knows what type of women you like. He knows what type of men you like. He sends them right to you. Sends them right to you. He knows what you're weak to. He knows what you're weak to. So she asked Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, called on him ar Rahman, because she was in most need of his mercy at that very moment to have mercy upon her due to her weakness and to turn away the evil of this individual, the potential evil of this individual away from her. And she mentioned Ar-Rahman as a reminder to the man that was approaching her to have mercy on her. I seek refuge with Ar-Rahman from you. And she mentioned Ar-Rahman in hopes that that would resonate with the man so that he would be merciful to her and not approach her or not, you know... Approach her in that manner. And this another example of this was found in the hadith of the three men that were trapped in the cave. Right. The second individual, he said, I had a cousin that I desired her like any man would desire a woman. Right. And I wanted her to myself. Meaning I wanted to commit zina with her. He says, so I made a deal with her that I would give her a certain amount of dinars, gold coins She would let me have my way with her. So she refused. No, I'm not going to do it. Then he said, He said, but as time went on, she fell on hard times. Going back to my initial point that I made earlier, that poverty will make a person do something that they wouldn't normally do in a normal circumstance. Poverty will drive a person to go do something that they wouldn't normally do if they weren't poor Which is why Umar تعانه, he said That if poverty was a man I would kill him because it, it makes people do things that they wouldn't normally do And so if you go back to the first time when he proposed made the proposal to her the first time She refused because she wasn't in need of money he said, But as time passed, she fell on hard times. And she came back and she made, she took the offer. So he said, I gave her a hundred dinars, hundred gold coins, that she would let me have my way with her. He said, He said, when I got down in between her legs, she looked at me and she said, fear Allah, Abdullah, fear Allah. And he said, the words penetrated, went straight to my heart. He said, I got up off of her and I walked away and I let her keep the money and I never asked her for anything else. Showing you that sometimes. Words resonate with people even when they're in the midst of doing an act of haram. Sometimes you might see someone knee-deep in the haram, and you're like I'm not gonna say nothing to the person. Look at they are they ain't in the haram, it is what it is. But you never know how powerful your words are in certain circumstances and situations. She said, she looked at him and she said, Ya Abdullah, ittaqillah. Here's a man, he done already had the desire, been wanting to do this for the longest, right? And you know, the longer the desire sits with you, the stronger it becomes. The stronger it becomes, right? And not only did he have the desire, but he paid, he gave her the money for it. Gave her a hundred dinars. And then she appeared to be willing, Right? And then when he got down, in between her legs, she said, Fear Allah. And this is also something that's for our young boys to understand. That even if a woman is giving in to you, and you can tell that she really doesn't want to do it, and you are pushing yourself on her, you are oppressing the person. You are making the person do something that they don't want to do. Even if they appear to be with it from the beginning. They they may have appeared to be with it from the beginning. But you have to use your better judgment. You have to use common sense. You can sense when a person is really not with it. You can sense when a person is not really feeling, is not really into it. And then you push yourself on the person anyway. right? And I'm saying this as it may not be applicable to us in here, but these lectures are being recorded. And we never know where this information is going to reach and who it's going to touch. We can't always look for right now, this situation right now. All right, but we look in terms of where this information, whose hands this lecture may fall in, and they may benefit some benefit from it, right? But she said, "Fear Allah Subhanahu wa Taala," and he got up off of her. He got up off of her, and the same thing with Maryam, When she saw angel, when she saw Jibreel approaching in the in the image of this handsome man, she said, "I seek refuge with Allah." Ar-Rahman, I seek refuge with Ar-Rahman from you. And she mentioned Ar-Rahman in hopes that he would have mercy upon her and not touch her and not, you know, mess with her or do anything to her. Right. And this is why the scholars mentioned she said that. Number one is because she was in most need of the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at that moment. And number two, as a reminder to the individual to have mercy upon me, don't take advantage of me. Don't do this to me. Right. And this is also something that, you know, women can use in the household when you see your husband getting angry, when you see your husband, you know, you know, fire is lit, you know, mention the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in in hopes that, you know, you can chase away the shaitan, you can, you know, quell his anger. Mention, ask him to have mercy upon me. Like, look at your face, look at your demeanor. Look at your attitude You're raising your voice And you know You look like you're getting ready To do something to me physically Have mercy upon me Don't you want Allah To have mercy upon you? The Prophet ﷺ said Those who are merciful The most mercy Will have mercy on them The most merciful Will have mercy upon them Be merciful to those Who are on the earth And the one that is above the heavens Will have mercy on you Right? And perhaps it'll work Perhaps it'll work, inshallah So, when you look at Maryam, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala praised her in the Qur'an twice for protecting her chastity, protecting her private heart. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in one ayah, And the one who protected her private, protected her chastity, and we blew our spirit into her. And in another verse Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says أَحْسَنَتْ فَرَجَهَا فَنَفَخْنَا فِيهِ مِنْ رُوحِنَا وَجَعَلْنَا هَا وَبْنَهَا آيَةً لِلْعَالَمِينَ And the woman who protected her chastity and we blew our spirit into her and we made her and her son a sign for the rest of mankind. For so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in two places in the Qur'an Praised her for her modesty and protecting her chastity And this is a quality of a righteous woman The Prophet sallallahu Alaihi said about the women That any woman Ata'a, uh, uh, Who prays her five daily prayers And fasts her month of Ramadan زَوْجَهَا And obeys her husband فَرْجَهَا And protects her chastity Protects her private part it will be said to her, enter into paradise through any of the eight gates you choose. Enter into paradise through any of the eight gates you choose. So protecting your chastity is something that is, or being modest is definitely something that is, um, would contribute to the perfection of a woman. And we have to make sure that we are raising our daughters, that the women in our community, you know, don't have to, you know, put on perfume and makeup and wear all these loud clothes to gain attention. Our women should, we should create environments where our sisters don't have to do that. We should create environments that are healthy, uh, religious environments where brothers and sisters can meet one another in a halal manner, so they don't have to resort to coming to Jumu'ah showing cleavage, showing you know wearing tight clothes, resorting to these measures. When you see sisters coming to the masjid like that, well, that is a reflection of what we are not doing as a ummah. That is a that is a some of it, because some of them are just ratchet and they just do what they want to do. And I'm gonna say it as it is. I mean, it is what it is. But for the most part, just having husnul bun, just having a good opinion of my sisters in Islam, I would say 99.9% of the sisters that come to the Masjid, whether on Jumu'ah or other times, and sometimes they're not dressed appropriate, sometimes they're just looking for attention, man. They're basically saying, hey, look at me, I'm right here. But they shouldn't have to do that. Because there should be halal environments that we create that brothers and sisters can meet one another. And every match that you go to, you got fifty to hundred sisters that are sitting around looking to get married that can't get married. And you look at the imams; he's overburdened with all of these, you know, responsibilities. You know, and I'm just trying to figure out why can't you fit the backbone of your community into your schedule, right? The women, they produce our children, right? And they are the vast majority of the people who give sadaqah. They are the vast majority of the people who come out for the lectures. They have the smallest places in the masjid. No disrespect, but the vast majority of masjid that I have been to, you go to the women's area, there's always some small rinky-dink place that, you know, and you're saying to yourself, the brothers don't even come to the masjid. The brothers don't even come to the masjid, why are we decking out the brothers area for what? They don't even come to the masjid. Look at the masjid for Salatul Fajr. Brothers don't even even come to the masjid. The house is packed for jumwah, but we're not structuring our masjids just to accommodate the Muslims on Jumwa. This is the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for worship, 24-7. And the sisters who dedicated members of the community, they always get some little area we call the sisters area, right? Yeah, come on, we have to do better than that. We have to do better than that, right? But there should be halal environments that have been created by the community, by the imam, by some of the younger people in the community who decided to sit down and put their heads together and create an environment where brothers and sisters can meet one another with their wali's and in a halal controlled environment, right? Where the sisters don't have to resort to measures like dressing inappropriately just to be seen, All right? We, we shouldn't we shouldn't have to resort to that, All right? Uh, so we have to keep reiterating this to our daughters. Uh, this quality can't be overemphasized enough, and that is the quality of modesty, right? Uh, number three, uh, from the qualities of the perfect wife, the qualities of the perfect wife. Number three is Um, The woman who is loyal. Every man is looking for a woman who's loyal. That loyalty is there. That dedication to you and to your mission is there. Does that mean that the woman forgets about herself? No. Because then you have in some situations where the woman has given up on any ambitions that she has ever had in her life and totally concentrated on the man. And then when the man ends up divorcing her, her whole life is in shambles, is shattered because she dedicated all of her life to her husband. No, you should be. You are not an extension of your husband. Right. You have your own life to live, even if you're married. You still have your life. You still have your ambition, whether it's going to school, whether it's, you know, whatever work or whatever employment whatever the case may be starting your own business you should have that you know that freedom to do that right and unfortunately sometimes as as Muslim men uh, we become very insecure and very overbearing and you know our woman's life has to become about our life and they don't even have a life of their own anymore and that's not fair that's not fair her life should not go on pause because she got married right so Men are looking for women who are loyal, and there's no loyalty that I can think of that is comparable to the loyalty of Khadija, رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهَا بِنْتُ خويلد, Uh the loyalty that she had to the Prophet without going into all of the details of Khadija's life with the Prophet وسلم, and he returned that loyalty to her. Khadija when she saw that the Prophet Sallallahu was making money for her as he used to work for her She was a businesswoman and every man in Quraysh wanted to marry her Every man in, in, in Quraysh wanted to marry her and the Prophet Sallallahu was honest with her money He used to take her money from Mecca to the area of Syria and make money and then bring the money back and sometimes double it and she started noticing certain qualities about him which, you know, goes back to the perfect husband. There are certain qualities that women are looking for. So what did Khadija see in the Prophet ﷺ that made her want to propose to him? What did she see in him? I'm asking. Sisters, what do you think? What I mean, how do you guys answer the questions here? I don't want to break protocol. You can, um, can ask the questions. No okay. What, what did Khadija see in the Prophet ﷺ? Other than the fact that he was honest with her money, Aside from that, what does she see in him that made her want to marry him? I'm asking the women. Yes. What does she see in him that made her want to marry him? Nobody knows. Okay. My lectures are not didactic. They're interactive. Okay, I'm not just sitting here talking for 45 minutes, right? boring people. No, you are going to interact, right? Um, there were certain things that she saw in the Prophet Wasallam that made her <laughs> want to marry him. And that came out when he received revelation. When the Prophet Wasallam received revelation, who did he run home to? He ran home to Khadijah. He couldn't ran home to anybody. He could have ran to Abu Bakr, who was his best friend prior to him receiving a relation, but he decided to run home to his wife. And sisters, this is, you know, for you to be, you know, you know, conscious of this, that most of the time when you have that good rapport with your husband, you are the first person he is going to bring something to. And the last person that he expects to shoot him down or to dismiss, you know, his ambitions and to make him feel less than right? And sometimes women, you have a habit of doing that. Oh, you thinking about doing that? Why would you do that? That's, you know, instead of being encouraging, even if you believe it's just an absurd idea, but you still want to be encouraging. You don't want to shoot him down. You have to understand the type of influence that you have on your man when you understand that, because some of you, especially younger women, you don't really get it yet. You don't really understand the type of impact and the type of influence you have over your man, right? Firaun, he was killing the boys of Bani Israel, right? And he was letting the women live. Why did he let Musa live? When he saw baby Musa, right, floating in the Nile River. Why why did they decide to let him live? Why didn't he kill him? Because when Asiya saw him, she said, we could take him. Notice her statement. We. Right? When women want you to be involved with something, it becomes we, you know. This pocketbook will look nice for us, right? She, see how she sucked you into that, right? But you have to understand the power of your words. Asia was the main reason that Musa survived, because she encouraged Firaun to let him live And not just let him live, but let's bring him home and raise him in my house. Here's Firaun killing all of the male children of Beni Israel. And then decides to let this one boy live. Not just live, but raise him in his house. And that was all because of the influence of a woman. Make no mistake about that. Women, your words are powerful. If you just only understood that. Start using your tongue to build your husband up instead of using your tongue to tear him down, right? Use your tongue for positive as opposed to using it for negative, right? So when the Prophet ﷺ received revelation, he ran home to Khadijah and he said, cover me, cover me, scared, frightened. He saw Angel Jibril in his original form. I don't think any one of us would be able to handle seeing something like that. He said when he looked up into the horizon, he couldn't even see any clouds. He just saw angel, everything. He took up the whole space in the sky. And he ran home scared and he told Khadija, cover me, cover me. And he said to Khadija, that I think that God is humiliating me. I think Allah is humiliating me. And Khadija, she stood up and she said, kalla wallahi. She said, no, by Allah. Allah is not humiliating me. Humiliating you And then she started to say some things to him about himself She said She said Allah will never humiliate somebody like you She said You keep family ties She said And you're honest And you're truthful She said And you take on responsibilities That are not even yours and you take care of, you know, people You take care of people وَتُقْرِئُ الْضَيْفِ And you take care of your guests, you honor your guests وَتُعِينُوا And you return the trust back to the people that gave it to you You know the Prophet, his nickname was Al-Ameen He was trustworthy Because people, like, people, they put their stuff in a safety deposit box Their valuables, right? During that time, the Prophet was a safety deposit box They used to give their valuables to him to hold. And subhanAllah, he was so honest. He was such an honest individual that even when Quraysh was trying to kill him, right? They had a bounty on his head. They were searching for him, looking for him to kill him. When he escaped to go to Mecca, the thing that held him back was two things. Number one, Allah did not give him the command to leave yet. Didn't give him the command to leave from Mecca to go to Medina. And number two was because he was trying to make sure he could give back to every person their valuables. Here it is. They're trying to kill you. And you're worried about giving them back their stuff. Right. Subhanallah. In a normal instance, we would be like, well, since you're trying to kill me, it's fair game. That's mine. now. I'm going to use that to you know, escape. But he said, no, you're trying to kill me, but I'm going to still make sure I give you your stuff back. Right, So he left Ali عنه, at the house with the stuff and him and Abu Bakr, they fled. But he left Ali there because he knew they wouldn't do anything to Ali. That was Abu Talib's son. They wasn't going to do nothing to him. But they would also find in the house with Ali their valuables and they got their things back. Because what would have happened had the Prophet Wasallam taken their things and not given the things back to them? What, what would have happened? And just fled to Medina with all of their valuables. What would have happened? It would ruin his his reputation. Not his reputation, the reputation of Islam. Because they don't care about your rep. They're going to use your rep to destroy the reputation of your religion. Which is why every time something happens now and a Muslim is involved, the first thing they highlight is the fact that he's Muslim. They don't care about him as an individual. They're using him as the wasila, as the means, as the vehicle to get to the religion. Which is why it's important that we make sure that we represent the religion correctly. So that we don't, it doesn't have a neg- negative reflection on the deen. You can say what you want to say about me as an individual, but not my deen. Because when you criticize the religion, it has an impact on the world. As opposed to when you criticize me, it only has an impact on me and my immediate family, my immediate circle. Not a big deal. Which is why when Umar تعانه, was stabbed... Umar came out to leave Salatul Fajr and a man by the name of Abu Lutlu'a he had a double-edged dagger and he walked up to Umar while he was leading Salatul Fajr and he just began to stab Umar. Stabbed him 11 times. And the one that hit him in his stomach, in his navel is the one that killed him. When Umar passed out, when he regained consciousness he told Abdullah bin Abbas, go find out who was the one that was responsible for stabbing me. Go find out who it was. When the Sahaba caught him, they eventually they killed him. When Abdullah ibn Abbas came back and he told Umar, he said it was Fayruz and Mujusi. Fayruz was an idol worshipper who they used to let stay in Medina because he was a blacksmith. He used to make weapons, so they benefited from him. And he used to pay jizya for living in Medina. But they benefited from his his work. So when Abdullah ibn Abbas came back and told Umar that it was the fire worshipper that stabbed you, Umar said, Alhamdulillah, لله He said, all praises due to Allah who did not make my death at the hands of a man who claims to be a Muslim Think about that All praises for Allah who did not make my death at the hands of a man who claims to be a Muslim Just think if it was a Muslim who killed Umar The, 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 the negative impact that would have had on the outside world who wants to accept a religion when you guys are killing your leaders because you don't like them? right? Who wants to be a part of a deen when that's, that's what goes on? Which is why when the hypocrite stood up and he told the Prophet ﷺ, fear Allah, Muhammad, and be fair, Omar stood up and said, oh, Messenger of Allah, let me cut his head off. The Prophet ﷺ said, no, he said, because I, f- I fear people will say what? Muhammad kills his companions. Who want to be a part of a deen when the leader kills his companions? Who wants to be a part of a religion where that's what's, that's what's going on? right? So they were always conscious about the way that the deen was represented. While today we can care less. We do us. And then when people say, well, you're a Muslim, you're not supposed to be doing that. It's like, you know, well, you're a Christian, you shouldn't be doing that. But that's besides the point. You are Muslim and you shouldn't be doing that. Which is why we are instructed to keep our sins to ourselves. You sin to keep that between you and Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala. Don't broadcast your sins around the world because you give people an excuse not to become Muslim. Don't ever let anybody use you as an excuse of why they didn't become Muslim. I didn't become Muslim because of this individual right here. He's a terrible Muslim, and if that's what you guys are teaching in your mosques, in your masjids, I don't want nothing to do with it, period. I and mean, this is this is something that you know we have to be cautious of. But Khadija she began to mention these things about the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam that you're honest, you you take on responsibilities that are not yours, you give people back the trust, the amana the that they gave to you, you 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 keep family ties. She start mentioning all of these qual she's using her tongue to build him up. Because after that she took him to her uncle Waraka who told him, I wish I could live to see the day when your people turn on you. Which is a whole nother issue. He said, my people going to turn on me. He said, nobody comes with what you're coming with, except that his people turn on him. Right. So make no mistake about it, that when a person is bringing a message that is of substance. Right. And you see people talking about them and backbiting them and slandering them or whatever. The person doing something right. Right. Because if you find yourself on the side of the majority, it's time to re-evalu- reevaluate yourself. You should never be on the side of the majority. But some of us don't know how to deal with conflict and know how to stand on our own two feet by ourselves, so we gotta be with the majority. But if you find yourself with the majority, it's time to reevaluate yourself, man. But the point that I'm making is that Khadijah she used her tongue to build him back up. When he came home and said, cover me, cover me, I'm scared. I saw Jabril, I saw this figure in the sky. At that very moment, that was her loyalty because she could have said, like many other people, you're crazy. You're majnun Right. When he went from Mecca to Jerusalem and back in one night, many of the companions begin to apostate from Islam because they couldn't fathom that you can go from Mecca to Jerusalem and back in one night. And it takes you 14 days on the fastest riding animal to get from Mecca to Jerusalem just one way. You telling us you went there and came back in one night? And some of us say we wish we lived during the time of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Don't ever wish that. Because you might have been a hypocrite during the time of the Prophet Alaihi Wasallam. Can you imagine someone telling you, "I walked from here to California and back." I went from I went to California this morning in my in my car and I came back. You know, before Dhuhr, you, you would be ready to put him in a mental hospital. You crazy? But that was a test of their faith. And even when they came to Abu Bakr, the people started apostate from Islam. And they figured that if we go to Abu Bakr and we get Abu Bakr to disbelieve, then we'll get everybody else because Abu Bakr was influential. So they went to Abu Bakr and they said, ma sahibu. Did you hear what your companion said? Abu Bakr didn't even want to hear anymore. He said, If he said it, it's the truth. I don't care what he said. (laughs) That's loyalty. Today, we come to an individual and say, Well, you know, they said this about you on the internet. Dude, like you know me for the past 10 years. I got to explain myself? Because there's no loyalty. We don't have that type of loyalty. You can know a brother, pray next to him for 10 years. A person puts something on the Internet about them and you still pray next to him. You pray next to him for Fajr. Something went up on the Internet about him for Thor and you don't even give him salams no more. Really? You never even came to me and asked me whether it was the truth. You never even gave me. You never even said perhaps he had a reason why he did it. You know me, but we don't have that type of loyalty. Abu Bakr, he didn't even want to hear what they said. He said, if he said it, it's the truth. You ain't got to tell me what he said. They came to him just like, oh, did you hear what your man said? I heard this lecture last night. He said X, Y, Z, and you you sucking right in. Word, he said that? That's what he for the law, man. Yeah, I think the brother really is straight. Mashallah to Really? Abu Bakr, They said, did you hear what your companion said? He said, if he said it, it's the truth. I don't care what he said. That's loyalty. And I'm not saying that that should be extended to everybody. But when you know a person, there's nothing that you can tell. I don't don't need somebody to come from the outside to validate you in my eyes. You already validated in my eyes. Even if you said something and it was wrong and it was a mistake, that doesn't change the way that I feel about you as my brother in Islam. That never goes anywhere. But, you know, especially as us as African-American Muslims, our experience is so totally different we already lack trust with one another so any we sometimes we end up looking for reasons not to trust nobody we look for reasons to dislike you but that, that's just that's just that self-hatred that that we was that we've been carrying for generation after generation right and it has an impact on us because there are certain aspects of our being that requires us to love one another but we don't even know what love is we don't even love ourselves we don't even love ourselves the Prophet ﷺ said None of you truly believe until you love for your brother what you love for yourself But if you don't love for yourself, how are you going to love for me? So I get it Some of us, that's our issue I understand why you don't like me You don't like me because you don't like you It ain't got nothing to do with me I'm just a reflection of you So when you see me, you automatically hate me because you hate you You don't hate me You hate you and I'm a reflection of you. So when you see me, quite naturally, it's like, I don't like that brother. You don't even know the brother. But that's just a reflection of your own self-hatred. And these are issues that we don't address. You don't hear this stuff being talked about. We don't talk about this stuff. And if it is being talked about, sometimes we go too far to the right or too far to the left, never really hitting it straight in the middle. But the point that I'm making is that Khadija, رضي الله تعالى When the prophet came home and said that he saw Andrew Jabril, she could have said at that very moment, you know what, you are clearly misguided. I don't want nothing to do with you. It's over with. But she believed in him. She even strengthened him when he started to feel down and feel low, like Allah's God is humiliating me. She said, no, absolutely not. That is not a sign. You are not someone that God is going to humiliate. You do this. You're like this. Your character is this. You do this. And she began to run off itemizing all of his qualities, and some of those qualities are some of the same reasons that she married him. Some of the same reasons that she married him. He was honest, he kept good family ties, you know, he took on responsibilities that weren't his. All of those things are admirable and honorable, and I'm sure that some of those qualities are some of the same reasons that she married him. And the Prophet, salallahu Alaihi returned the loyalty to her. Let me show you how this, as we talked in the khutbah about reciprocity, Meaning, people want in, in return what they give out. Although Khadija gave him that loyalty, even after Khadija was dead, the Prophet ﷺ gave her that loyalty even after she was gone. On one occasion, Aisha تعالحنها, she said, ما على أحد من نساء النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم ما على خديجة ولم تر- ولم أراها. She said, I was never more jealous of any of the wives of the Prophet ﷺ like I was jealous of Khadija and I never met her. I never met her. When Khadija died, Aisha was only four or five years old. So Khadija was, Aisha's last image of Khadija was as an older woman. Right? As an older woman. The Prophet ﷺ, let's do the math. He contracted the marriage with Aisha at 6, he consummated the marriage with her at 9, alright? So when he married her, he married her uh, two years after Khadijah died. Khadijah died in the 10th year before Hijrah. 10 years after he received revelation, Khadijah died, right? Two years later, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam married Aisha. Aisha was 9 years old. So that means if you go back 9 years prior to that, that means that when the Prophet sallallahu first received revelation, right, first received revelation, right, Aisha was how old? One, right? So Aisha's memories of Khadijah was as an older woman. She didn't see Khadijah in her prime when the Prophet married her. He was 25, she was 40. She was in her prime. She didn't, see, she don't have that image of Khadijah. So her image of Khadijah was as an old woman, right? So she said one time, that I was never more jealous of any one of the wives of the Prophet ﷺ like I was jealous of Khadija, although I never met her. She says, so I said to him one day, she said, one day he began to praise Khadija in my presence. And this shows you that when a brother has more than one wife, that you should never, ever, never, ever, ever mention one wife in the presence of another. I'm going to give you that jewel to take with you. Right? I don't know if polygyny is something that is prevalent in the community here. Uh, nonetheless, uh, the jewel is, is for free, as the Arabs say, balash, khudha balash. Take it for free. I'm not even going to charge you for it. Um, she said, he mentioned Khadija in my presence one day, and he began to exceed the boundaries in his praise of Khadija. Oh, Khadija's like this, and she's like that. Right? No woman wants to hear another woman, not even your mother, in her presence. Right? Like to praise your mother's food, like your mother's mac and cheese. I don't know who made the mac and cheese this afternoon, but yo, it was off the chain. <laughs> For real. <laughs> I don't eat, like, it take I'm a very hard person to impress, especially when it comes to mac and cheese, right? So she said, I couldn't control myself. She said, so I said to him, why do you keep mentioning this old woman? When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has replaced her with something better, meaning me. Very offensive. But that's sometimes what happens when a woman gets jealous. Her jealousy kind of overclouds her judgment and she begins to utter and say things that you know she probably doesn't necessarily mean or she means, but not necessarily in those terms. So she said, Why do you keep mentioning this old woman? When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has replaced her with someone who's better. Me. And the Prophet, sallallahu he said to Aisha, What did you just say? You see a different side of him now, right? Look at the loyalty. He said, Allah did not replace Khadijah with someone who was better. He said, Khadijah believed in me. Look at what he's doing now. He's running off all of her qualities, just like she ran off all of those qualities to him. She said, He said, she believed in me when no one else believed in me. She accepted my message, she was the first one to believe. She accepted my message when everyone else rejected my message. He said, she aided me with her money when nobody else would give me money. And she had all of my children. So you are not better than her, stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. You transgress boundaries that you shouldn't have transgressed. And he became so upset Aisha went in a different room and she raised her hand. She said, oh Allah, if you remove the anger of the Prophet Sallallahu for me, I will never mention Khadija like that again. You, you understand? You see the loyalty? That even though Khadija was deceased, that loyalty, no one will ever have that place. No one would ever take her place. Just because a woman is gone doesn't mean that she has been replaced. She's no longer here. But better believe that position she had will always be there. You will never occupy that. And he had to make that clear to her. And the comment was very, you know, a, you know, it affected Aisha because Aisha didn't have any of his children. All of the time that she was married to him, she never had any of his she never had any of his children. So for him to say to her, she had all of my children, basically, and you didn't. You know what I mean? Like that hurts. But you have to understand that we're human beings and. When you hurt somebody, you got to expect that some of that might come back to you, you know. But Aisha, as it should be in every marriage, there should be boundaries in every marriage. Things that we just don't say to one another. We don't hit below the belt. And I'll give you an example of a boundary. Your spouse... And since the lecture is dedicated to the sisters, I'm going to use your husband as an example. Your husband may share something with you from his past that um, he probably didn't share with many people. And in sharing that with you, you caught him at a very vulnerable moment, whether it was something from his childhood, something from his past, something that he might have even been ashamed of. But he shared it with you. And then some time passes, and then an argument ensues, and you bring that up and you throw it in his face, and that's why you used to get high, and you saying, "Subhanallah, I shared that with you in secret. I shared that with you, like you know, just sharing a part of my life with you, and you wait until we get into an argument, and you throw that back up in my face. Wallahu a'lam, that is the ultimate violation, man." You don't take stuff that people share with you in private and in secret and in their vulnerable moments, you don't take that and throw that back in their face simply because you're angry or because you know that that is hitting below the belt and you know that that's going to hurt the person. And a simple apology, I'm sorry, doesn't cut it because although you are sorry, all right, you're sorry for what you said, but you damn sure meant to hurt the person. And that's the worst thing. You meant to hurt me. And you don't do that to people, man. So in our marriages, we have to have boundaries, certain things that we just stay away from. You know, mentioning your husband's mother. You might say something about his mother, whether criticizing her cooking or criticizing the way that she caters to you, especially if a man grew up in a home and it was just him and his mom. Like, that's my mother. She was there for me when no other woman was there for me. She changed my paper. She carried me. She came to visit me in jail when I didn't have a soul. And i marry you and then you're going to mention my mother. Like, don't do that. Don't do that. There should be certain boundaries that we don't transgress in our marriage. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala a'lam. I don't know if um, sisters, am, am I like making myself clear here? Like, it's my, my speech. There's no ambiguity in that, right? You got me? Okay. Um... <coughs> I don't know how much time we have left before uh, before Isha. Um I still have uh, three more qualities to go through. Um, I'll kind of breeze through them really quickly, and then if there's any questions, inshallah ta'ala we'll try to um, tackle those. The third quality is maturity, that you know every man is looking for in a woman, a woman who is mature, comfortable with who she is, understands her role and her responsibility in life, Right? And this is maturity. And the person that I want to connect that to is the daughter of the Prophet ﷺ, Fatima. Fatima bint Muhammad. Let me tell you a little bit about Fatima. Number one, Fatima was the youngest out of all of her sisters. Fatima had three, three sisters. She has Zainab, Um Kuthum, and Ruqayyah, And she was the youngest. She saw all of her sisters get married and in some instances were divorced. Right? Unquthum and they were both married to the sons of, of Abu Lahab prior to the Prophet ﷺ receiving revelation. When the Prophet received revelation and began to propagate the dawah of Islam, to spite the Prophet ﷺ and to you know, dishonor him, Abu Lahab told his two sons, Utbah and Utaybah, to divorce the Prophet's daughters as a sign of shame and humiliation in the community divorces daughters all right and it's the same thing that you find people doing today people do the same thing today right if a brother marries a sister right and and she adopts a particular medhab or methodology and you'll find someone saying you know you should ask for khul because the person is not this or she is not that Right And lo and behold, the women, you got a good husband He take care of your children, take care of you And you want a divorce, you want a up Because he's not Salafi You want a up because he's not on this minhaj or that minhaj And then you go marry somebody on that minhaj And they don't even take care of you I mean, like, that happens today Right um, One thing you have to Grow comfortable with me is that I, I call a spade a spade I, I don't, That's how I sleep at night I lay my head on my pillow at night and I sleep. I I go to a deep sleep. Why? Because I don't have a problem saying saying what I feel and saying what I believe is the truth. The moment I begin to, you know, see things going on and not be, I can't sleep like that. I can't. I've never been that type of person. I can't sleep. I sleep well at night because I don't have, you know, things haunting me in the back. I don't. I say, you know, and I, and that doesn't mean that I'm perfect. I'm not perfect. I have my flaws. I have my shortcomings. Anyone who knows me, knows my history. You know that I have tons of mistakes, but that is what makes me who I am. I don't shy away from that. Part of our problem as a Muslim community, as a community, is that we are not able to be human. We try. We try to paint this picture of ourselves that we're this perfect ummah, right? And then when you peel back the layers, each layer you peel back, you find dysfunction on top of dysfunction, on top of dysfunction. But Fatima, she was the youngest of all of her sisters. So she saw all of her sisters marry, divorced, she saw all of her sisters die. And Fatima was given the nickname "Bintu Abiha, the daughter of her father, her father's daughter. Because Fatima used to treat the Prophet ﷺ just like Khadija used to treat him. She used to act towards the Prophet ﷺ just like Khadija, like her mother, used to act towards the Prophet. ﷺ. She used to be like, you know, basically like a mother, like a mother figure to the Prophet ﷺ because she, there was no more daughters, there were no more girls. She was the youngest and she felt that sense of responsibility. Which is why when Ali, تعانه, when Ali, who was married to Fatima... When Ali wanted to marry a second wife, Ali was going to take a second wife. The hadith is in Sahih bukhari in the chapter of marriage. Ali was going to marry the daughter of Abu Jahl. The daughter of Abu Jahl, she took shahada, became Muslim. And when Fatima got wind that Ali was going to marry her as a second wife, she ran and told the Prophet sallam, to, to intervene. And she said, all of Quraysh talking about the son of Abu Talib, Meaning Ali, him marrying the daughter of Abu Jahl and that no one is standing up for, for Fatima. Meaning you are not saying anything about this. So the Prophet ﷺ went to Ali and he said, Oh Ali, inni la I'm not making something halal, haram. Meaning I'm not telling you you can't take another wife. I'm not making something haram that Allah subhanahu wa Taala made halal. He said, Muhammad He said but by Allah the daughter of Muhammad will be not united Will not be united in a marriage to a man with the daughter of the enemy of Allah Meaning the daughter of Abu Jahan Meaning you can take another wife But if you do that you will divorce my daughter You're not going to have my daughter in the same situation So Ali abandoned the idea of marrying the daughter of Abu Jahan The scholars they explained the hadith and said the reason why the Prophet intervened was because Fatima didn't have a cushion. She didn't have anybody to go to. Her mother Khadija was deceased. All of her sisters were deceased. She had no other female relative to help her along in that situation. So if the Prophet interceded when Ali wanted to marry a second wife because Fatima didn't have any other female relatives to help her along in the situation, how in the world can we introduce women who are new Muslims to polygyny? How? How can we introduce sisters in the community who have absolutely no other females in there? And there, and this is what you find going on in many massages and many communities. Sisters are getting married, and unfortunately, they're marrying brothers, and they don't have any support. There's no support system. When a sister's on the verge of divorce, you have sisters celebrating. Can't wait until she get divorced, right? Can't wait until she get divorced so they can go ask for the the, the man that she was married to and end up inheriting the same problems that she had. <laughs> right, you're so smart, mashallah. My mother used to say, you're so smart you stupid because you try to outslick the system. You always try to outsmart the system. You figure if she gonna get divorced, then I'm gonna I'm take a crack at it because what happened to her ain't gonna happen to me. And you don't realize the problem the man has was not the woman he divorced, it's him. <clears throat> but you thinking that he divorced her because the problem was her and it ain't gonna happen to you. MashaAllah, you got it all figured out, man. Got it all figured out. MashaAllah Tabarakallah. So, uh, Fatima... She was very overprotective of the Prophet and she had a sense of maturity with her because she was the youngest in a situation where she had no more siblings. So it pushed her, it forced her to be in a situation where she had to be very overprotective. And she was overprotective of her father. So much so that they gave her the nickname, the father's, her father's daughter, meaning that he used to she used to treat him the same way that her mother used to treat him. And that was, she used to act towards him as if that was her husband or if that was her son. Very overprotective of her father. And you'll find that with a lot of women who have, you know, siblings or whatever, the case, and they're the youngest, they're very overprotective of their parents. Right. The oldest child, the first child is always getting smart with the parents because they, you know, have seen so much with the parents. They've lost a little respect for the parents. So you'll find the oldest child being mouthy with the parents. And then you'll find the youngest sibling, you know, who's very close to the parents, you know, come to their defense. And sometimes you find that vice versa. You'll find the the oldest child being the more overprotective of the parents and the younger child. Not having any respect for the parents. So you find it in both ways. You know, you find it in both ways. Um number five from the qualities of a perfect woman uh, is the quality of education. Of course, I don't have to go into a whole soliloquy about Aisha and how educated she was, right? But just to give you an idea of how knowledgeable Aisha was, Imam Zuhri. Right? Muhammad ibn al-Shihab al-Zuhri One of the scholars of the Tabi'un, He said He said if you was to compare The knowledge of Aisha To the knowledge of the rest of the wives Of the Prophet wasallam, He said rather to the rest of the women in the dunya You would find that the knowledge of Aisha Surpasses the knowledge of all of the other women About Deen when it comes to this deen, Aisha's knowledge was uncomparable. Abu Musa al-Ash'ari, one of the uh, Sahaba, he said, ما أشكلا علينا أصحاب رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم حديث قط فسألنا عائشة إلا وجدنا عندها منه علم. He said that we never had a problem understanding a hadith. We never had a problem understanding or comprehending a hadith, except that we went back to Aisha and we would always find that she has some knowledge about the hadith. Aisha was a scholar. And no doubt, this is something that is um, that is admirable and honorable when you meet a woman and she's knowledgeable about her deen. A lot of the sisters, unfortunately, you marry brothers that are supposedly knowledgeable because you want them to teach your deen. How about coming into the deen already, how about coming into the marriage already knowledgeable so that you you don't want the man to teach you his deen, teach you your deen. You want him to just be a husband because we got too many teachers out here, and students of knowledge. Everybody's a student of knowledge. Everybody looking for a student of knowledge, ain't nobody looking for a husband, right? And you can go to Philadelphia and find that all day, every day. Everybody looking for a student of knowledge. Just look for a husband. Learn your dean so you can absolve him of that responsibility of teaching you your dean. And all you want him to do is just be a good husband. Because what happens is he come in being the student of knowledge. And he's majoring in the minor and minoring in the major. He's majoring in being a student of knowledge and he's minoring in being a husband. I don't know how many phone calls I get of so-called students of knowledge and you running around to the master teaching classes, right, because you're a student of knowledge, and you don't take your wife nowhere. You don't do nothing. You don't spend no time with your family. MashaAllah Tabarakallah. Majoring in the minor, minoring in the major. So if you learn your deen, sisters, then you can absolve him of that responsibility of teaching you your deen, and he can just be a husband, right? I'll give you an example. One of the scholars uh, of Islam... uh, I'm, I'm forgetting his name. Uh, Sayyid al-Tabi'in. What's his name? Uh, Sayyid ibn Musayyib. Sayyid ibn Musayyib, one of the major scholars of the Tabi'un. He had a daughter. right? And he married his daughter to one of his top students. One of the leaders of the Muslims sent him a letter or sent for him to propose to his daughter and he turned him down. Yet and still, his top student was poor, didn't really have much, and he married his daughter to his top student. When he brought his daughter to the student's house to drop her off, this is now your husband. When he opened the door, the the girl fainted because she'd never been alone with a man before. When they regained consciousness and they consummated the marriage, the husband woke up for salatul fajr and began to put on his clothes. And his wife asked him, the daughter of Said ibn Musayyib, she asked him, where are you going? He said, I'm going to the lesson of your father, Sa'eed. You know, I attend his lectures after Fajr. She said, Ijlis, ana alimuka in Musayyid. She said, sit down, I'll teach you the knowledge of my father. You don't need to sit with my father no more. Sit with me. I'll teach you your deen. So what I'm saying is stop looking for brothers who, you know, are going to teach you your deen. I'm just looking for a brother who's knowledgeable. Right. And the brothers who are knowledgeable, make no mistake about it, even though they have knowledge of the Deen, they also have their own shortcomings and their weaknesses. Right. So not every brother who's a so-called student of knowledge and is knowledgeable of the religion, um, that doesn't mean that they actually act upon their knowledge. We all good when it comes to teaching everybody else about Islam, but our practice of Islam is something totally different. And I can say for myself personally, it might sound like I know a lot about Islam, but all you gotta do is ask my, my wives and my children about my practice of deen, you know what I mean? And I mean, you you. I'm good if, I, if I'm if i even, you know, a percentage of what I know of Islam, and I know that I'm gonna be accountable for that. Because everything you learn about the religion, you are responsible for. Imam Ahmad, said, ما حَفِظْتُ إِلَّا وَعَمِلْتُ بِهِ وَلَوْ مَرَّةٍ واحدة. He said, I never memorized the hadith except that I acted upon it, even if it was just one time. He said, so that hadith would not be a proof against me on the day of judgment. Because everything you learn, you will be accountable for. So it's it's not that, you know, I want to marry a brother who's knowledgeable. No, you be knowledgeable. Learn your deen, so that's one less responsibility your husband has to take care of, and he can just focus on being a husband. Just be a good husband. I don't need you to be my teacher. I learned my deen and all I need you to do is practice it with me. (laughs) Be my equal in practicing because sometimes when brothers come in and they know that they are knowledgeable and the wife is not knowledgeable, um, they take advantage of you. They take advantage of you. Serious. You you saying, oh, I just want a brother who's knowledgeable. Oh, I want to marry this brother. He seemed like he's so knowledgeable, of the dean. I, and I won't y'all laugh because you don't want. Because the moment he marries you and he comes into your home and he gets you up for salatul fajr, it's an argument. Don't stop saying you want a brother that's knowledgeable, because you don't. Well, you might want it, but that's not necessarily what you need. You mean you might need somebody that's an, uh, equal to you, religiously understand something people who are knowledgeable, they live their lives a certain according to a certain standard. And if you don't get up for fudger, you don't want to cover, you don't want to do this, you don't want to do that. you don't find enjoyment in going to lectures, you don't find enjoyment in reading, you don't you know you don't find enjoyment and pleasure in these things, your life is going to be horrible. You know, take that mask off and see things for what they really are. All right, so I, I'm very knowledgeable of her deen, and there's no doubt that some of us as men, we shy away from women who are knowledgeable about our deen, because we don't want to be called on our foolishness. We don't want people, we don't want our wives pointing out to us the wrong that we do. So we go after sisters who don't know much about the deen. We, and we have to stop doing that because you're hurting your children. Because if you marry a woman who's not knowledgeable of the deen and you have children with her, what is she teaching your children? Nothing, absolutely. The Arabs they have a saying: someone who doesn't have something can't give nothing. What you gonna give if you don't have it? You marry a woman who doesn't have any knowledge of Islam. She doesn't know how to make a ghusl, right? You marry a woman doesn't know how to make a ghusl. Every time you're intimate with her, you know she doesn't know how to make a ghusl. Here it is, you married a woman, you're intimate, you make a ghusl, go about your business, and the woman goes in the bathroom and say, A ghusl is not a shower. And you might have been married to her for years until maybe you decided to take a shower with her one day and you've seen her make a ghusl and you're saying, What is that? Say, Oh, I'm making a ghusl. It's like, That's not a ghusl, that's a shower. How long have you been making a ghusl like this since we've been married? You're saying to yourself, SubhanAllah, You've been married to the woman for five years, and she hasn't made a proper wudu or proper ghusl since you've been married to her. What is she going to teach her children? You've been married to the woman for five years, 10 years, 15 years. You've never heard her recite al fatiha And one day you just happen to walk in the door while she's in the living room praying. And she's just chipping al fatiha up. And you're saying to yourself, how long have you been reciting al fatiha like that? Since we've been married. Fifteen years you've been reciting Al-Fatiha like that? Fifteen years you've been reciting Kuhu ahad in the same, in, in, you know, the same surah in every in every salah. This is because you mar- you choose to marry women who don't have any knowledge of the deen. And you reap what you sow. So, you know, going after a woman who has knowledge of her deen is definitely something that is important. Uh, And it's definitely something that contributes to the perfection of a wife. And the last quality or last character, characteristic, uh, number six, uh, is the quality of, can anyone remember the qualities I mentioned, oh I'm boring you guys to death, determination, a woman who is determined, determination. (coughs) And it kind of like is in sync with the first quality. And the the woman that I use for this quality quality is Um Salama, Hind bint Abi Umayyah. Is the daughter of Abu Umayyah. Uh, her real name is Hind, and her her surname was Um Salama. You put Um or Abu in front of anything, right? Um Salama. She was married prior to marrying the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. She was married to a man by the name of Abu Salama. And of course, they had a child named Salama. And just real quick, just to show you, when Abu Salama was on his uh, deathbed, um, he made his wife a promise that she would remarry after him. And he told her to make this dua when he died. That, oh Allah, Oh Allah, reward me for my time of difficulty. And to give me better after it. She, he told her make me a promise that you will make this du'a after I die. So when um Salama, when Abu Salama died she said I never made the du'a although I promised him I would. Because I never saw anybody to be better than my husband. I couldn't make this du'a. Because the du'a was oh Allah reward me during my time of calamity. And reward me with what is better after it. Meaning the death of her husband. She said, So I couldn't force myself to make this dua because I didn't see anybody to be better than my, son, my, my husband. She said, من من Who was better than Abu Salama? No wonder she doesn't, see, she doesn't even see anybody on the level of her husband. And then Abu Bakr عنه, came to propose to her. She turned him down. And Umar came to propose to her. And she turned him down. And then the Prophet ﷺ came back, came, sent someone to propose to her. And she turned the Prophet ﷺ down, but she did it in a way where she was being honest about why. She said, I don't want to marry you for three reasons. She said, number one, because I have a lot of children. And you are the messenger of Allah, and I don't want to overburden you, right? I don't want, you know, this is a woman who, although her husband is deceased she's single she still wasn't hard up to be married right some women you know that your situation would be burdensome on any man and you still go ahead and let the man sign his own death warrant no, serious. You look at your situation. You are emotionally attached to your ex-husband. You know, your children can't handle another man coming into your life right now. And then you go ahead and you get married anyway. You destroy what is left of your family. And not only that, you, you harm Dubert and the man because you can't give him all of yourself because the, the, the little bit of yourself that's still left is still attached to the man that used to be your husband. You already know the situation and you let the man walk into that situation anyway because you wasn't being honest with yourself. She wasn't hard up for marriage. The prophet was suddenly proposed to her and she turned him down. No, let me tell you why. Number one, I have a lot of children. You are the messenger of Allah. I don't want to overburden, right? A sister might have three, four, five children, and a brother comes and you know he has no children and he says, you know, I wanna marry you sister and you just, you know, it's, it's, it's a green light, it's all good. Single brother, no kids and he wanna marry me and I got three kids, absolutely. Who would turn down a situation like that? But think about it, if he doesn't have any children, you need somebody who's not gonna just be a husband, you need somebody who's gonna be a father. Father figure to your children. But you're just thinking about yourself. You don't know how to say to the brother, your proposal is honorable. I respect you for that. But as you can see, I have three children. I, I need a different type of dude in my life. The- you're- I'm pretty sure you would make an excellent husband, but I need somebody who has experience. I have three children, four children. They need a father. You know, but we jump at the opportunity simply because we're not being honest with ourselves. Um Salama said, no, I have children, and I don't want to overburden you. She said, number two, is because I'm an older woman and you and you're you're younger. You're younger than me. I'm an older woman. Like, you know, you don't want me. You you probably want a younger woman. I'm older. And she said, number three, I'm very jealous, and you're the messenger of Allah and you marry women. Like, I'm not gonna be able to handle that. That's another thing. You marry a brother knowing that, you know, the possibility of him taking on another wife is there, but you still go into it anyway, believing that you are going to be such a good wife to him. You are going to erase any thoughts from his mind of going into polygyny. Sadly mistaken. As I said, you got the whole system figured out. Instead of being honest and saying, listen, if you decide that you're going to go into polygyny, I suggest that you look for someone else because I can't handle that. Just being honest with myself. But you don't do that. You go in and say, inshallah, I can handle it. I've been in polygyny before. I have friends that were in polygyny. Inshallah, I can handle it. And in the moment the brother comes and say, well, you know, I'm entertaining marrying another woman. All oh, heck brick. Oh no, I can't handle that. You don't, You can't even afford this house. How You gonna you come up with every excuse in the book. When the fact of the matter is that it's not the fact that he can't afford it. It's not the fact that he's not taking care of you. Uh, it's not the fact that he's not doing this or that. It's the fact that you can't handle being in polygyny. And if you were honest with him from the very beginning, you would have gave him a fair shot to go look for somebody else who would have been okay with the situation. There's somebody for everybody. Don't force somebody's hand to marry you. Don't force somebody's hand, that's, that's, that's lying by omission. That's lying by omission, meaning you just, you know, neglect to mention certain things about yourself so that the person can marry you. But those things eventually come up later on in the marriage. And the brother's sitting there looking like, well, if you would have just told me this from the very beginning, I wouldn't have wasted my time, I wouldn't have wasted your time. All right, so the Prophet Sallallahu he said, in response to her three issues. Right? What was her three issues? The first one was what? Children. She got too many children. Number two? She was an, an older woman. Number three? Jealous. She's very jealous. Listen to how the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam sort of responded to those. This is a man. Like, yo, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, sort of, that's my man. <laughs> that is my dude. That is my man. In colloquial terms, right? That is my dude right there, man. He said to her. He said, as for your child, he said, as for your age. He said, I'm older than you. Don't worry about that. I'm older than you. He said, as for your jealousy, he said, I'll make dua that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala remove that from you. We won't have that problem. He said, and as for your children, for Allah, then Allah and His Messenger will take care of your kids. Don't worry about that. So she said, okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Who how can you deny that? How can you turn that down? Okay. And you know, he married her, subhanallah. And I mean it just it just shows you that, you know, the woman just being in tune with yourself and being comfortable with yourself. Right? Being comfortable with who you are. And you know, if the person is not able to willing to accept you for who you are, then it is what it is. But a man wants a woman who is comfortable in her own skin. Any man, that's that's a beautiful quality to have in a woman that you are comfortable in your own skin. And that you don't you don't you don't dance around certain issues, you're very upfront, you're very clear about what you want, what you don't want, what you can handle, what you can't handle, and that is something that contributes to you being a perfect wife. Because it's transparency, and transparency builds trust when a person can see straight through you they know who you are that you know and it and you help to avoid unrealistic expectation the mother of frustration is expectation make no mistake about that the mother of all frustration is expectation you were expecting that this was going to happen and when it didn't happen then that's when you became frustrated but you can eliminate all of that when you are comfortable with who you are and you lay that on the table and you let the person make their own decisions. What Um Salama did was she let her she put her whole hand on the table. I can handle this, I can't handle this, and then let him make a decision whether or not he's going to entertain that. But don't come in with all of this baggage and then hide all of that in the closet and get married. We paint this picture that we're all we're all perfect, inshallah, and you should see some of the brothers and sisters in the sit-down you would get an Academy Award for the best actress. Inshallah, brother, mashallah, brother, I've never heard mashallah and inshallah said so many times in one sitting. Then when you get married, that mask comes off, the bag is out of the closet, and the real you is put on the table after the person committed to marrying you. And that's not fair, that's not fair to anyone. Not fair to anyone. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. So this is what I wanted to present, bi-idhnillahi ta'ala, you know, more so for reflection. For us to look at these qualities and to reflect on these qualities uh, as it relates to ourselves and where we fit in. Do we possess them? Do we not possess them? And how do we acquire them? How do we acquire them? and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala a'lam wa sallallahu ala nabiyyina muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallama taslima katira wa akhiru da'wana alhamdulillahirabbil alamin i don't know if there were any questions or comments about what was presented i'm comfortable not answering any questions so don't think of any questions if you don't have none alhamdulillah we can pray shah and keep it in here. you know i don't i don't i'm not hard pressed for questions right